Thanks for joining us for today's message. Here at Temple Baptist, we're a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. You know, throughout the course of our lives, you and I have been told to do a lot. Sometimes we've been told with urgency. We've been told and urged to do things. We've been urged to do things when we were young. So when we were young, we were urged to clean up our room or put things back where you found them or don't hit your brother or don't jump off the garage roof with an umbrella. You might break the umbrella. Maybe you get a little bit older and you're off to school or something like that and you're told and you're urged to do other things. Do well in school. Eat your vegetables. Don't hit your brother. And then you get a little bit older, you get up into your 20s maybe and they urge you to do other things, other priorities in life. Get a good job. Don't hang out with the wrong crowd. Don't hit your brother. And then you get into the, your 30s and beyond, and people urge you to do other things as well, like save for a rainy day, or buy a nice house, or you should get a nice car, or you need to do those kinds of things, or don't hit your brother. Well, for me, and maybe for you as well, some of these things are, are constant reminders. Some of them are messages that are delivered with a greater sense of urgency. And you know, there's people in the Bible that have gone through this idea of urging. People in the Bible were urged to action in a number of different places. Lot was urged by the angels to flee Sodom and Gomorrah before its destruction. The Egyptians urged the children of Israel to leave Egypt after those plagues. Ruth asked Naomi not to urge her to move away and to leave and go back to her people after the death of her husband. David told Solomon that his soldiers urged him to kill the king. But David said, I decided that I wouldn't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Jezebel urged her husband Ahab to do evil things. Naaman urged Elisha after Elisha performed the miracle and Nahum was healed. Naaman urged him to receive a gift for that. Daniel went to his friends and urged them to pray to the Lord for mercy from God to give him the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Throughout the Bible, people are being urged to do different things. I read something just recently, and it was about exercise, and someone said, they wrote, whenever I get the urge to work out, I lay down until it goes away. Some of us have experienced urgency recently. If you were late in purchasing all your Christmas gifts, you probably experienced that persistent and earnest sense that something important had to be done. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 because Paul is urging believers to do a certain thing. So if you have a Bible with you, just turn it open to Ephesians 1, or if you find something on your on an app on your one of your smart devices, open it up to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul writes this letter from prison, as we're going to find out. Paul was a, a tent maker and a Pharisee in his early days. He came from the province of Cilicia and known for... Um, making of tents and from goat's hair and stuff. So that's why he became a tent maker, probably. You know, he wrote more than half of the New Testament over the course of 17 years. And half of that he wrote within a three-year period. And so he's very prolific. And he did a lot of his writing in prison. This book of Ephesians, or the letter of Ephesians, it was a letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Ephesus. So this letter was written while Paul was in prison as well. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, starts off like this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. Stop right there. He said, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. So he says first 
that he's the one that's doing the urging, but he's doing it from a position as a prisoner. And he says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. Why was Paul a prisoner for the Lord? He was declaring what he called the gospel, the good news. That good news is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. He came to the world, lived a sinless life and took the sin of the entire world on him when he was crucified and he paid the price for sin so that anyone who would believe on him could have their sins forgiven. That's the good news that Paul called. Paul called it the good news. And so he was preaching that and giving that message, but there were those in authority that didn't like him giving that message. And so eventually they imprisoned him for doing it. So Paul writes as a prisoner for the Lord, then he says, but then I urge you. So let me ask you this. If you were in prison and you were writing to people who had accepted the message that you had given to them, not that you were taking credit for it, but you know, you were in a position where you were the teacher in that situation and you had a little bit of leverage and you found yourself in prison and you were writing to people who were not in prison. They were free. And you had the opportunity to urge them to do something. What would you do? I would be tempted to urge them to, can you do something for me? Can you send something to me or give me some relief in some way? Or maybe some of you can use some of your influence so that you can procure my freedom. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul urges his readers. And so us believers in Jesus as well. He urges them to live a life. It says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I'm a prisoner because of the gospel. And as a prisoner for the Lord, I'm going to urge you who are free. I'm going to urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So he's basically saying, I guess we could boil it down to this. There is a Christian way to live. And I think that you should live like Christians, like believers. He says that, we all have received a calling. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, then we have our sins forgiven. We're part of the body of Christ. Many other things have happened as a result of that. But we've received a calling as well. And Paul in this passage says that our life should be such that it's living up to the calling that we've received. One, common, one commentator wrote that living a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received means to live in a manner that's suitable to the privileges that you enjoy and suitable to the state of grace and favor with God into which you've been brought by hearing and believing the gospel. But that first part, he says, living according to the calling that we've received is living in a manner suitable to the privileges that you enjoy. You might be asking what privileges are there to becoming and being a believer to being a follower of Jesus. And I know that you would be able to name a number. And so I just wanted to review for you and for me, some of these privileges that we have. Think of the privileges that we have because Jesus Christ has forgiven us. So first forgiveness for sins. Second adoption into God's family, friendship with God, justification, union with the Lord, a member of the body of Christ, access to God through the Holy Spirit, oneness with Christ, having the indwelling Holy Spirit, redemption, completeness in Christ, freedom from condemnation, promise of never being separated from God, citizenship in heaven, receiving the spirit of power and love and a sound mind, the promise of grace and mercy 
in time of need, to be God's workmanship and the ability to do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Those are just some of the privileges that we receive, the privileges that we have as a result of being in Christ. And Paul is saying that we need to live a life worthy of that. I think that can be a little confusing, but let's look at what he means. How do we do that? How do we live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received? He goes on to tell us how we do it in the very next verse. But before we look at what it says, let's make sure we know what, it, what he doesn't say. We, guess we need to think for a moment of what not to do and how not to do it. When people are given privileges, they tend to react in two different ways. One of two different ways. They don't all act and react the same way. Some are given to a sense of entitlement. They've been given some privilege and then they get used to the privilege that they have. And somehow they feel that they deserve the privilege that they've been given and have earned it in some way. And therefore it grows into a sense of entitlement that I deserve the the gift that I was given. And others are given to the, a different type of reaction, a sense of not entitlement, but a sense of appreciation, recognizing that what they've been given, the privileges that they have received have not been earned, but they were just a gift. And it causes them to be grateful. It causes them to be thankful. So we have been given all of these privileges. We've been given all of these privileges. And it seems as though there, it comes with an expectation to live up to those privileges. Now that you've been given this, you don't have to live this way. You can live above. You know, it was Uncle Ben that told Peter Parker... With great power comes great responsibility. But it's Paul here that tells us that with great privilege comes great responsibility. So here's how he says. He's going to tell us in two different ways. We need to be something, our character, and we need to do something. It's about who we are and what we do. That's how we live up to the calling. Think of a person that you think, without even looking into how Paul suggests that we do it, think of a person that you might think is living up to the calling that they received as a Christian. You might have a pious picture of a person in mind. But let's look at what it says here that Paul says how to live up to the calling that we've received. First, it's about character. It's about who we are. Living up to the calling that we've received is about who we are. It says first in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. That's the character side of things. He says, in order to live up to the calling that we've received, it doesn't lead us to a sense of entitlement. It's supposed to lead us to these ideas of humility, gentleness, and patience. It says in that next verse, verse three, make every effort. That's what the do part is. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then the following verses gives us the reason why it's because of unity. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul tells us how we can reach unity. And I'll tell you, I think we always are going to struggle with this idea of unity. We sometimes misconstrue it as uniformity, like we all need to be the same and think the same. It doesn't mean that. But even in our differences, we need to maintain 
a level of unity. And it's achieved by step one, humility. If each one of us is humble, and how we think of ourselves in a humble sort of way, that's going to lend itself toward unity. Without this, there won't be any gentleness. And there won't be any patience. And there won't be any bearing with one another in love. And therefore, it won't be any unity. Pride breaks peace. But humility and gentleness restore peace and keep it. Contention comes through pride and love comes through humility. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, take my yoke on me and on yourselves and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for, he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. He says, I'm gentle and I'm humble in part, heart and you will find rest for your souls. So first, if we want to live up to the calling that we've received because of all the privileges that God has given to us, we need to be Humble people. Next, it says that we need to be gentle. Gentleness is how we think about and treat others. Humility is how we think of ourselves. Gentleness is how we think of and treat other people. So we need to have a temper that makes us unwilling to provoke other people. So I grew up in, the, in uh, a family with three boys. And there are many times in my childhood that I remember being tempted and giving into the temptation of provoking someone in my family. And I have to say, I'm not the only one that did that. You know, my brothers were just as good at it as, as I was. But when it comes to the Christian temperament, we are supposed to put that aside and not give into the temptation. It's easy to be tempted and it's easy to give into a temptation. What's difficult, what takes real strength and fortitude is resisting that, that temptation to provoke other people. And some of you know how to push other people's buttons and you like getting people riled up. Well, that's not what God wants from us. God doesn't want that. He wants us to have a temperament that makes us unwilling to provoke other people. If there's something that I'm thinking of saying or doing that I know will provoke someone, I need to have the strength and the fortitude to resist that. And in the same way, I need to have the temperament where I'm not easily provoked or offended by the words or actions of other people. We are tending to be a very soft people. Christians tend to be easily offended, easily offended by someone's words, offended by someone's actions, whether it was directed toward them or not. We take offense to somebody doing to somebody else. And I'm offended, even though I'm not even the party that's wronged. We have a tendency to do that, but we need to be opposed to that. If we're going to be gentle people, we need to control ourselves. We need to not just resist the urge to provoke others, but we also need resist the urge to be provoked by others or offended by their words or their actions. We need to be opposed to anger. We need to be opposed to resentment. We have to let things go. We don't hold on. That guy said something bad to me in 1942 and I haven't said a word to him since. Well, I don't think that's the calling that God has given to us. That's not what Paul says when he says, I urge you as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live up to the calling that you've received. We've received that calling. The next one is patience. And patience is, in this case, the willingness to bear injuries, to be injured by another person, even another believer, and yet bear with it. Not allowing yourself to have anger grow, not allowing yourself to have resentment, 
Not any of those things. Patience, again, it's a, people think patience is a weakness, but true patience takes strength. Bearing with injuries without seeking revenge. That's what patience is. And it says bearing with one another in love. That means we have to put up with each other because I know that I have shortcomings. I'm not perfect. I'm not holy. I sin. And for me to expect that all other believers won't sin or will not be perfect and be offended when they're not is, is irresponsible. It's not the way God wants us to look. So when we, when other people do things that we don't think they should do, we need to bear with that. I'm not saying we condone wrong behavior. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, but when you're offended or when someone does something against you, we need to be able to put up with that. We need to be able to make sure that we don't seek revenge. We need to bear with one another in love. Matthew Henry in his commentary, he calls these people, those who are humble and gentle and patient and they bear with one another in love. He calls them the best Christians. Because it's, they're the ones that are doing what is best, the way, living the way God wants each one of us to live. They are not a barrier to other people and their pursuits of following the calling that God has given them. They encourage other people to pursue the calling God has given them. God has given us all the same calling. He's given us all the same privileges. And he wants us to live a certain way. And he urges us to live up to that calling that we have received. We have things in our own lives that we find hard to forgive, even forgive ourselves. We should be willing to forgive others when we see those things in them. And then the next verse, verse three, it says, make every effort, make every effort. It seems like there's not an option where we can do it half-heartedly. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. He wants us to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace of, of peace. And in verse four, it says the reasons why we went through that. And we'll go through that again in a moment. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. But it says, make every effort. What does make every effort look like? That's everything that you have within you dedicated toward doing that. And so I have to ask myself, is everything that I have within me dedicated toward this one idea? Keeping the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And I'll have to say, I don't think it is. There are too many things in our world where we can have contentious, ID, contentious arguments with. We can have disagreements. We have differences of opinions. And sometimes those differences of, of opinions get escalated. And that's not what should happen. So there's one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord. And there's one faith. And in order to be a believer in Jesus, you have to believe in Jesus. You have to understand that he is a son of God, that he lived a holy life. And he lived it so that he could take the sin of the world on himself so that anyone who would believe in him could be saved. That's one faith. As believers in Jesus Christ, we all believe that. There's one baptism, the way that we declare our faith, being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And there's one Father and one God, so the one God and one Father of all. One God who calls all of those who believe in his Son, he calls us his children. He is above all by his essence and by his dominion 
over all. He dwells in all believers by his spirit. Those are the motivations for unity. That's the calling that we have as believers. Living a life worthy of our calling does not allow room for us to become pretentious. To say, I have all these privileges, and therefore I must be treated special. That I have all these privileges, and I have somehow earned it, because not everybody has those privileges. We should not become pretentious. We must not become overbearing as Christians. We must not become legalistic, trying to tell everybody else how they should live the, the calling that God has given to them. We should not be unforgiving. We should not be ungrateful. In fact, it should be quite the opposite. We should be forgiving because Jesus has forgiven us. That's our motivation, motivation for giving. For forgiving. We should be forgiving. We should be grateful for what God has done for us. We should be grateful for what Jesus sacrificed for us, for the privilege that he gives to us. We should be grateful people, not contentious people. We should be grateful. We should be unpretentious. We should be understanding of others. We should be uncomplaining. Boy, we love to complain. I mean, we all love to complain. We love to evaluate. Our world seems to be based on evaluation. When you go to buy something online, one of the first things you're going to think, look at and see how it's rated, how, what everybody else, how everybody else has evaluated. That's eh, pretty good. It's not bad. It was an okay burger. Fries were soggy. Don't go there. It was overpriced. Whatever it might be. You're always looking at other people's evaluation and we're having a tendency to evaluate it as well. Evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. But we need to be uncomplaining. We need to be understanding. We need to be good natured. We need to be enduring and kind people. Why should we be this? Because that is what God has called us to. Thanks for listening. And consider joining us live on Sundays at 9.15 and 11 a.m. For our address, directions, and any other information, find us online at templebaptist.com.